go ahead and stand. worshiping at home, in your living room, in your car, wherever you are, we're just so glad that you're here this morning. It is the second Sunday of Advent, and today we lit the candle of peace, and we're about to sing a song about how our jo we're uh, joyful and we're triumphant. We're joyful because he came to be our peace, and we're triumphant because the chastisement of our peace was upon him at the cross. So we remember that Jesus came the Messiah as a foreshadowing of, of his death. He came to die for us, for our sin, to set us free. So your peace is complete. It's whole because of him. Amen.
you could go ahead and take a seat and uh, kids you can be released to your classroom Good morning, Linworth. How are we doing today? Fantastico. Okay, I love it. Good, good. Well, uh, once again, good morning. My name is uh, Rich, and I'm the family pastor here. And I want to say good morning also to those of you that are listening online. And we're uh, glad that you could join us. And if this is your first time here, uh, we want to welcome you. And glad you are spending your Sunday morning with us. And we hope that uh, you are you enjoy it and that you are able to connect with God. I want to invite everybody to uh, grab a connect card, okay? It's right in front of you, those little cards. You're wondering what those are for. Pull those up, especially if you are a first-time visitor. love for you to go ahead and fill that out. And um, we have some uh, boxes in the back that you can drop those in at the end of it. But if you could fill it out, Mark, if you're a first-time visitor or not, we invite you to our Welcome Center. We have a gift bag for you there. We got a few things in there. We got a nice little coffee mug and some information about the church in there. So we invite you to uh, send that or put that in there and then go ahead and pick up your gift. And then also on the Bible app that you can follow along to service with, uh, you can fill out a Connect card on there too. So um, today's announcements, we're going to get into it, but it's all about Christmas, okay? So every huge Christmas announcement. So we're doing a lot of things this year, uh, hopefully to bless you and to bless our neighbors and your friends. So the first thing we wanna uh, show you here that this is a little door hanger bag and in it has a uh, tract in it, has some sugar in it, of course. And also there's a little card in it and where you can sign your name on it and it is simply just for you to say Merry Christmas uh, to any of your neighbors. And so we want to invite you to, uh, to go around your neighborhood and go ahead and put those on the doors. And uh, so there's not, uh, it's kind of a little subtle in the sense if they read the track, there's some information about Linworth Road Church if they're kind of curious and they want to check out and see what we're about. But it's really for you to say, hey neighbor, I love you. Uh, hey neighbor, I know you're here and I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. So what we're doing is we're inviting you to grab a handful of these. We have a thousand of them. So go ahead and grab enough to, to maybe hit the houses around where you are. So um, that's our first thing. Next is a Christmas invite. So this is a personal invitation card. Uh, unfortunately, only some of you got them here this morning. So we're gonna have them for you on the way out on some tables as you, as you exit. But this here, you can invite somebody to our Christmas Eve services, which are at? Very good, you guys got it. It's a lot different, okay. Uh, it's a beautiful little card on information about what is going on. And then also on the back of it too, they can text the word Christmas to a number here and they'll get a response from us and then also they'll get an automatic email which tells them some of the things that are going on for our service so uh it's pretty cool so we invite you to pick up a couple of these invite your friends neighbors um co-workers uh to church for our christmas eve service all right next up we have our giving tree and if you noticed outside there's a tree with some tags on it and uh, these are um, some things that you can buy for. Let me go ahead and read it here for you. It's um, they're toys for personal care items for the Afghan G's recently resettled in Columbus. 
you guys did so well last week that you took all the tags, uh, which is, we just want to thank you. So we have all new tags for you. So you can go ahead and grab these. And these are some uh, gifts that you can get. The information, you can go ahead and read it on your app there. But you need to have those in here by December 12th. We want them unwrapped. And if you could put the tag with them, that would be really helpful for us. So, and any more questions, the information is, is in the Bible app for you. And then finally, we do this almost every year for Christmas. Uh, I don't think we did it last year, but we have coffee beans that we are selling. And these here, let, let me go ahead and read this too. This coffee is grown in Honduras by a member of our sister church there. And it's purchased by Friendly Bean Coffee out of Kansas. They roast it, they package it, and they make it available to us. Now, the big thing about why we are selling this is that 50% of the, the proceeds here, they go to Casa Hogar Vida, which means house, home, life. And so this is a project in Honduras where it helps families that have been afflicted by AIDS. And so um, those profits go to them. They're great, easy Christmas gifts. You have like those five odd people you want to buy something for that you've been wondering what to do, how you're going to do it. You can walk out of here this morning and check all those boxes by just picking up some of this coffee. All right. So um, I think that's it. Uh, one final housekeeping item is that uh, we started serving coffee, if you noticed that. And we just want to encourage you because we got brand new carpet in here to put a lid on it. Okay, guys, just if you can. And uh, so we appreciate that. I hate drinking coffee out of coffee cups with lids. So it's a sacrifice for me, and I hope you would sacrifice that by putting the lids on there. Okay, let's go ahead and invite up Nick here. Uh, we start a new series for Christmas. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. How are, how are you guys doing Christmas shopping-wise? Anybody done yet? Nice. Anybody not started yet? All right, there's, there's the truth. Um, well, hey, it looks like today's going to be a nice day, so maybe you can get out there today. Uh, well, as Rich said, we are kicking off a new three-week uh, Christmas series today entitled Hope Has a Name. And in this series, we're going to be looking at some of the names or the titles that are given to Jesus specifically in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I would say for me, for most of my life, I haven't really thought a lot about my own name. Um, that is until recently, uh, when I had this really weird experience where um, I changed my profile picture on Facebook, and uh, I'm not on social media all that much, so it'd been a long time since I'd posted anything or changed anything. And uh, so apparently one of my sister-in-law saw it and really liked the picture that I posted. And so um, it was this one of uh, a recent one of Faith and I uh, when we were out in Colorado a couple months ago. And so for whatever reason, she wanted to show this picture to her husband. And so she gets on Facebook and she searches my name. And in doing so, it pulls up several other Nick Carruthers all living in Ohio. And out of this list, um, two of them had as their profile picture uh, selfies of them with no shirts on. And it was like kind of that classic one where like you can tell they're staring at a mirror and they got the phone down here and, and their head's cut off. And it's just like from the neck to the, you know, to the waistline. Um, now, guys, I don't know if any of you have that as your profile picture, but let me just say as one of your pastors, maybe you should change that, right? Like I don't, I don't care how good the abs are, it's just, it's just not a good look. Um, Another one of them had uh, a picture of him sort of lounging on a couch, it looked like, and he's just flipping off the camera, like just 
flipping at the bird, you know? And it's like, I don't even, what is the point of that? And, and then in the midst of that list, there's a picture of me and Faith, and we're standing in front of the Garden of the Gods just smiling, you know? And that's, um, and so what I realized in that moment uh, is number one, my name's not all that unique. In fact, there's a lot of us living here in Ohio, and apparently uh, we're not rebel. And so again, it was kind of an interesting moment. Now, when it comes to the topic of names, uh, it seems to me that there are maybe two types of people. Um, there are those that take a lot of time and energy uh, and, and are very intentional about the names that they choose. And so uh, when it comes to naming a child or, or maybe even a pet or something like that, they look for names that have a lot of meaning or that are special to them because of, let's say, an association with a family member or someone like that. And so again, for this type of person, names are super important. Uh, they take it very seriously. But in contrast to that, it seems like there are others out there who are like, you know what? Yeah, we were driving to the hospital and the name popped in my head and it was like, hey, it sounds good. It, it, it rhymes with our last name or it, it, it flows well or something like that. And so again, there's kind of two different ways to approach it. Uh, my, I, maybe you're more like my wife and I, where we're somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Um, for example, when it came to naming our, our two boys, we uh, chose for them, um, we named them after uh, some well-known missionaries from the past. And so our oldest is Hudson Taylor, named after the missionary who went to China in the 1800s. And then our youngest, one of the twins, his name is Henry Martin, uh, and he too is named after uh, a well-known British missionary who went to India. And so obviously those names were intentional, um, they have significance and meaning to us. However, though, when it came to naming our girls, we just picked their first name simply because we liked them and we thought they sounded good. And so we have a Miriam and we have a Mabel. Um, we did, however, with their middle names, pick uh, names that were uh, named after family members. And so again, Faith and I were somewhere in the middle when it came to naming our kids. We were uh, looking at names that were really significant and meaningful. And then we just picked some that we thought sounded good. Now, when it comes to the Christmas story and to the birth of Jesus, it is clear that all of the names that are given to him are very intentional. They're very meaningful, and they even tell us some things about who he is and what he came to do. For example, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, we see the story where an angel shows up to Joseph in a dream, and he tells Joseph, look, Joseph, this baby inside of Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Joseph, do not leave your wife, do not divorce her, but instead stay with her and actually name this baby Jesus. And you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, apparently the name Jesus was a fairly common name in the first century. And the reason for that is because Jesus uh, is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know that that name was a, a very significant name to the Hebrew people. In fact, the name Jesus or Joshua means Yahweh saves, which is why the angel says what he does there to Joseph in that dream. Now, as you look at uh, the entire uh, Bible, uh, both Old and New Testament, what you see is that there are actually quite a few different names or titles that are given to Jesus. In fact, some Bible scholars have identified as many as 50 different names or titles for him. And all of them speak of and describe who he is and what he came to do. 
In fact, even just in our most recent series through the book of Revelation, we saw all kinds of names that were given to Jesus, things like King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Lion uh, or Lamb of God and Lion of Judah, Alpha and Omega and on and on we could go. However, though, in this series, we want to focus on just a couple different ones that we find in the book of Isaiah, specifically in chapter nine. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, to Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, if you want to use one of the pew Bibles, it's on page 573. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. Now we're going to, uh, by and large, just focus on two words out of this section, but I want to read the larger uh, passage so you can see the context here. And so starting in verse one, it says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, Father, that you and your grace and in your wisdom, you did send to us a child. And this child, King Jesus, it's him that we worship. And so, Lord, we pray today magnify Jesus in our hearts. Lord, you would glorify him. You would uh, give us eyes to see. You would give us ears to hear and hearts to know him better. I do pray for myself and my friends, Lord, that we leave here different than when we came in. That we leave here looking a little bit more like your son, Jesus for our own sakes and for the sake of the world. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now there's no doubt that uh, for many of you, this is probably a very familiar section of scripture. And it is certainly one that has been associated with the Christmas story and with the Christmas season. And in many ways, it's such a beautiful and hopeful section. And if you dig into it, there's a lot going on here as it relates to uh, even the original situation and context in Isaiah's own day. But even with that said, there's no doubt that this passage is predicting and is describing for us the coming Messiah, the King, the anointed one, the one that will reign forever and ever and who will sit on the throne of David, as it says there in verse seven. 
But if we back up just one verse and we look at verse six there, we see that there are these four different names which are used to describe what this Messiah will be like. Again, it says there, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this morning, we want to focus on that first name there that's used to describe the Messiah, and that is Wonderful Counselor. And the question that I want to try to answer this morning is this, how does Jesus, the Wonderful Counselor, practically counsel us? I thought about that question this week. I, I thought of three specific and practical ways uh, that I think Jesus does this. And so let me share those with you and then I'll unpack each one. I think uh, the first way that we see Jesus counsel us is through his saints. A second way that Jesus counsels us is through his scriptures. And then a third way that we'll look at that Jesus counsels us is through his spirit. And so starting with the first one here, Jesus counsels us through his saints. Now, depending on how you grew up, uh, perhaps if you grew up Catholic or, or maybe even Eastern Orthodox, you might hear that word saints and think of something very specific. But actually, in the Bible, we see the New Testament authors use the word saints to describe the people of God. In other words, the Bible uses the word saints to describe all followers of Jesus. For example, in Philippians chapter one, Paul begins that letter by addressing the church at Philippi. And here's what he says. He says, Paul and Timothy serve to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so again, what we see here is that in the New Testament, the word saints refers to all Christians, to those who are a part of the church. It's not just some term reserved for those uh, super uh, Christians or those varsity level believers. No, it's for all Christians. All believers are saints. So how does Jesus through his church or through his saints counsel us? Well, first off, the Bible makes it clear that we need others in order to live healthy and wise lives. For example, Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool seems right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Um, Proverbs 14, 12 says it this way, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death or to death. And so what we see here is that you and I, we need each other and we need others to counsel us in order to live wisely. When we rely on ourselves or look to ourselves as the source for wisdom and instruction, uh, we not only end up being foolish, um, but according to that second proverb there that we just looked at, it can actually lead to our own destruction or even death. Again, this idea and this theme is all over the book of Proverbs. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And so again, what we see here is that there is value and there is wisdom in getting counsel from others. But even with that said, the Bible does, however, make a distinction about the type of person that you and I should receive counsel from. Um, for example, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
As well, Psalm 1, uh, David in there warns us against receiving counsel from those who are wicked. And so, yes, you and I, we need counsel from others, but as followers of Jesus, we should be seeking counsel from fellow Christians. Now, I don't think that that means that that God can't or that God doesn't use non-Christians to instruct and counsel us. I mean, there is, after all, uh, this notion and this reality of common grace. Like, I don't think necessarily that your dentist has to be a Christian in order to give you wise advice and counsel about your teeth. But even still, by and large, when it comes to receiving counsel from others, I think that the primary way that Jesus wants to do that is through other Christians who have the Spirit of God in them. And I think that's even why he gives uh, the church different spiritual gifts. They rely on each other and, and look to each other for wisdom and for counsel. In 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul spends a long portion talking about spiritual gifts, in verse 7 he says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Um, later on in that chapter, Paul compares the church to a body. And in that, he talks about how our bodies have uh, these many different parts, and, and, and each part has a different function. But that they work together, and each part is necessary and important in order for us to have a healthy body that functions well. And in the same way, he compares the church to that, and he talks about how all these different gifts are given to people within the church, and how each one is necessary and plays a role and a part. And because that's true, what that means is that we need each other and we are dependent upon one another. And in that, Jesus uses these different gifts in order to instruct and to counsel and to build up his church. And so we see here that through different spiritual gifts, Jesus counsels us. Uh, I'm sure that many of you have encountered that and have benefited from that. Whether it's been someone using their spiritual gift of discernment or, or maybe it was a word of wisdom or, or perhaps it was through a teaching or, or maybe even someone uh, sharing a prophetic word with you. Not only this, though, we know from the scriptures as well that, that it would talk about how there is value and there is wisdom in us receiving counsel from those who are older than us whether it be those who are more spiritually mature or, or whether it's actually those who are just physically older. Um, Job 12, 12 says, wisdom belongs to the aged and understanding to the old. Um, the apostle Paul in the book of Titus tells older women to teach and to counsel younger women. Um, Psalm 145 talks about the importance of one generation, uh, an older generation, declaring to a younger generation the, uh, the works and the mighty acts of God. Um, I know that for myself, personally, I have received counsel many, many times from uh, believers who are more mature than me, from those who are even older than me and are in a, a different stage of life that is still yet ahead of me. Certainly my parents and my in-laws have, have done this for me. You know, when it comes to talking about parriage or just, you know, advice about owning a home. Um, certainly the elders and the staff members of this church and other churches that I've been a part of have, have done that. Um, before Faith and I were married, uh, God used Rich and Aaron Hendricks to, uh, to counsel us and to walk us through premarital counseling. 
I think we even see uh, Jesus do this through other things, things like Christian books and even specifically biographies of other Christian men and women who have gone before us. And I know that for me personally, I have been instructed and counseled through many different books and biographies over the years, um, especially when I first started following the Lord. I just, I didn't like reading before uh, I came to know the Lord. Like I, uh, I think as I've said before, I like spark noted a lot of books in high school, but, but then at 19, I, I started following Jesus uh, seriously for the first time and God just awakened this, this desire and this passion to to read. And, and so again, I read a lot of Christian books during that time and, and even discovered biographies and was just, you know, amazed at how uh, wonderful and helpful Christian biographies can be. I told you earlier that we named our oldest son Hudson Taylor. And the reason that we did that is because, uh, again, early on, I read his biography and God used that book in a very powerful way to inspire me and to challenge me in my faith. Um, in fact, it's a book that I've read a couple different times, and I'm sure I'll read it again at some point in my life. Um, but if I think about maybe the second time I was reading through the book, I came across this really interesting section in the biography. And in it, there's this, uh, this part where Hudson Taylor is really struggling in his life and in his faith specifically. And he's having trouble just figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus and to, to be a man of faith. And so he's actually uh, pretty tempted to give up at this point. And, and, and at the time, I, was, uh, I too was going through a challenging Lord. And so I was very engaged and interested in this section, like, how's this gonna turn out? Even though I'd read the book before, I knew how it turned out, but it was like, again, this, this part captured me. I'm like, wow, like, like these rock star people like Hudson Taylor struggle in their faith? Like, it's so relatable, right? And so I'm, I'm reading in this chapter, and then he, he mentions that he ends up getting this letter from a friend. And the letter has a really profound impact on him. And here's, here's what, uh, how Hudson Taylor describes it. He says, when my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes. And the spirit of God revealed to me the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. And here's the sentence that his friend sent him. But how to get faith strengthened not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. If we believe not, he abideth faithful. I looked to Jesus and I saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave thee. Ah, there is rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I'll strive no more. For has not he promised to abide with me, never to leave me, never to fail me, and he never will. Get this, here, here's Hudson Taylor. He's really struggling in his faith and a wiser, more mature friend comes along and writes him a letter. And in that letter, there's this one sentence that just totally captures uh, Taylor and helps him uh, to see the truth. And it was used by Spirit of God. And as a result, it really frees him and helps him to keep on going in his faith and even to continue his work as a missionary over in China. And so here I am over a hundred and some years later, and I'm struggling uh, with practically the same idea. And now I'm reading this book, a book that I've read before, but this time I read it. And God uses that same wisdom and counsel from this guy named McCarthy that I have no idea who he is. And yet God uses it to help me as well. How amazing is that? 
Jesus really is our wonderful counselor. And one of the primary ways that I think he seeks to counsel us is through his church, through other saints. And what's amazing about that, as I just pointed out, is that he can even use dead ones, right? Like ones that you and I have never met that we won't meet until we see them in glory. And I'll, I'll get to find this McCarthy guy and I'll be like, look, you don't know me. I, I lived in, in, you know, I was born in 84 and all of that. But thank you for writing that sentence. And thank you, Hudson Taylor, for living the life that you did. Let's move on to the second way, though, that Jesus counsels us. The wonderful counsel counsels us through his scriptures. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, very well-known verse, but it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, Hebrews 4.12, another well-known verse says it this way, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. So what we see here is that the word of God has this amazing ability to confront us, to correct us, to rebuke us. It can even expose our intentions and our bad motivations. However, though, if we allow it, it also, and, and if we yield ourselves to it and submit ourselves to it, it also has this amazing ability to teach us and instruct us to grow and mature in our faith. And so because of that, if, if you and I are not regularly in this word, if we're not submitting ourselves to it, then we are missing out on the wisdom and the counsel of Jesus. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned Psalm 1. And I talked about how in that psalm, it warns us about receiving counsel from those who are wicked and how even being in their presence can affect and shape us. But if you keep on reading the psalm, it, it actually tells us not only what we should not do, but it goes on to tell us what we should do instead. Here's what it says, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. Um, very similar to this, God tells Joshua uh, in Joshua chapter one, uh, he says this in verse eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You see, as you and I, as we meditate upon and saturate ourselves in the word of God, there is this transaction that takes place. And in that we meet Jesus, the, the person of Jesus, the one that John one would say was the word, the word that took on flesh and he begins to show us. And in that process, we are given wisdom and discernment. The word, it encourages us and exhorts us. And because of that, when we saturate ourselves in the word of God, when a man or a woman does that and lives their life according to this book, we will in the end be prosperous and successful. 
Now that prosperity and that success might not look like how the world defines those terms. In fact, it could look very different from how the world defines those terms. But according to God's standards, you and I will have a successful and prosperous life if we live by this book. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a cheesy quote, and, and personally, I, I love Bibles, and I have many different ones. This one is kind of a newer one, and so uh, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Um, but I, uh, I really like that, that famous Charles Spurgeon quote when he said this. He said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And so is that you? Are you in this book regularly? Do you meditate and think about it often? If not, I, I just wanna encourage you. I think one of the keys to, to living in this book and to believing in this book, and this is something I've told you many times before, is that you and I have to know and we have to believe that God's word and God's commands are for our good. Right, like if you think like God is just, you know, this, this bully up in heaven who just issues out commands because he wants to, wants to show how powerful he is, he wants to control us, then I think you're going to, to want to stay away from this book. But no, his laws and his commands are there to protect us and to guide us and even to bless us. And if you and I, if we truly get that and if we believe that, we will love this book. We will honor this book. And we will read it every day and obey it. Um, you know, earlier this week, I was just uh, reading in the book of Isaiah myself. And in chapter 48, I ran across this verse that I, I'm sure I've read before, but I had never, it just really, the, the Holy Spirit really uh, caused it to stick out. And, and here's what God says in verse 17 of chapter 48. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way that you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. See, God's, in that passage, God is begging Israel, Israel, listen to me. I love you. My words and my commands are there for your good. They're there to guide you. They're there to lead you into the way of peace. You see, again, Jesus, his uh, love and his grace, uh, through that he counsels us in his word. And again, his word is there both to protect us and to bless us. Um, David in Psalm 119, it's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's essentially like a love letter to the Word of God, and it's because over and over again, he talks about the beauty and the benefits of obeying and living out the Word, and in verse he very famously says, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Anybody want to break out into Amy Grant, uh, thy word right now? Um, right? Like, again, that's a, such a, that's like a coffee cup verse, right? Like you might have a coffee cup at home with that on it, but, but look, it's true. It's true, right? Like, like, like you uh, and I are led by and guided by the, the word of God. It's a, a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And look, if in a day and an age where uh, living out the Bible and believing it is not only considered weird, but it's actually considered dangerous in some ways, right? Like to, to hold to biblical orthodoxy 
especially in areas like gender or sexuality, uh, is to have the moral low ground in our society. And because of that, if, if, if you and I don't hold on to the word of God, we are going to get confused. We're going to get lost in this landscape that we find ourselves in. And look, the, the pressure to compromise or to just tweak a few things or to, to cut out a few bits here and there that we don't like is only going to grow. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, one of our so-called Christian founders, which is totally not true, by the way, he, he literally took a Bible and a pair of scissors and he began to cut out only sections of the Bible that he liked. And then he took those cutout sections and he glued them into another book and it's known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, the, the pressures that Jefferson was facing, which led him to do that, are, are different than the ones that we face today. Right? Like his were around miracles and the supernatural and the resurrection. Like he didn't buy into any of that stuff. It was considered foolishness. Whereas ours today would be more around things like sexuality or the exclusiveness of Christ for salvation. Things that our culture has deemed as inappropriate or even hateful. And yet as followers of Jesus, we are called to accept and to obey all of this book. Not just the parts that we like or that are convenient. Um, Tim Keller in his little, short little book called Hidden Christmas, he said it this way. He said, in many non-Western countries, a profession of Christian faith can be dangerous to your very life. There is as of yet little physical persecution of Christians in Western countries, but there is increasingly ridicule and contempt for those holding to historic Christian beliefs. All of this takes courage to face. When you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up your right to say, I will obey if, or I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, that is not obedience at all. You are saying you are my advisor, not my Lord. You're saying I will be happy to take your recommendations and I might even do some of them. No, if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up your right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion. But this is what we are called to, nothing less. Um, Jesus in John chapter 14 at the Last Supper, he stated it this way. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. What we see here in these couple of verses is that there's this connection between loving Jesus and obeying his word. And the result in doing so is not only wisdom and protection and guidance, but it's also intimacy. Right? Like it says there in that passage that, that Jesus says, if you keep my word, I and the Father will come to you and we will make our home with you. How amazing is that? What, a, what an amazing picture. And really this idea here brings us to the, the last way that Jesus counsels us, and that is through his spirit. You see, I quoted uh, just a minute ago, John 14, 23, but just a couple verses before that, Jesus said this. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Um, Jesus continues to elaborate on this theme of, of, of the helper. And in verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, just two chapters later, uh, this section from 14 to 16 is a long teaching section of Jesus at the Last Supper. But in John chapter 16, he comes back again to this, uh, this theme around the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 16, verse 12, he says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so here we have Jesus. It's right before he goes to the cross. And one of the main things that's on his heart and is on his mind is that he wants his own. That even though he is going away, he will not abandon them. He will not leave them alone. No, instead, he is going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And the Spirit is going to dwell not just among them or around them, but he's actually going to live inside of them. And because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells inside of us, he is able to speak and to counsel us. And he can do that through others. He can do that, as we talked about, with spiritual gifts that are coming through others. Um, he can obviously do that through the scriptures by highlighting and illuminating a, a passage and helping us understand a passage better. I mean, he can even do this directly through speaking a word into our hearts and our minds by giving us a dream or a vision or something like that. Certainly when we read the book of Acts, we see the Spirit was constantly counseling and guiding the early church. Again, it's all over the place, but let me just share a couple examples. In Acts 8, we see the Spirit uh, go to Philip and, and, and tell him to, to, uh, to run up to this chariot and explain the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. We see it in the very next chapter, in chapter 9 with Ananias. The, the Spirit tells him to go to Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, and to help be a part of leading him to Jesus. We see it in chapter 10, where the Spirit tells uh, the Apostle Peter through a vision to go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel to the Gentiles for the very first time. We see it in Acts 13, when the Holy Spirit tells the church at Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas in order to send them out as missionaries. Certainly, we see all throughout Paul's missionary journeys, the Holy Spirit guiding him and leading him. For example, in Acts 16, he uh, has this, what's known as the Macedonian call, this, this vision of a man begging Paul to, to come to uh, the area of Macedonia. Uh, we see it in Acts 18 when Jesus himself kind of appears to Paul in a vision and tells him to stay in Corinth, preaching the gospel, to, to not be afraid. And, and we see there that Paul stays there a year and a half in that city. And so again, the point here is this, that Jesus counsels us through his spirit. And as I just said, he can do that through others by using their spiritual gifts, or he can do that directly by giving you a vision or a direct word to your hearts or to your mind. 
or he can use the scriptures. And, and often I think he, he uses a combination of those. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a pretty rotten day and I was uh, feeling a little bit discouraged and overwhelmed about life and, and specifically about ministry. And, and it was a Friday and so it kind of been a long week and I came home and uh, my family wasn't there, uh, which was unique. And, and uh, so I had to get to the dog and get him out of the crate and, and take him out to the bathroom. And so I, I got onto my back porch and let the dog out. And I'm just sort of standing out there waiting for him to do his thing, uh, which sometimes takes a while. And, and uh, I'm just sort of interacting with the Lord. And I'm praying and I'm just sort of telling the Lord all that I'm feeling and what this particular situation. And, and honestly, I was just kind of complaining to him. And all of a sudden, this phrase, this verse popped into my head. And it was the verse that says, I will not offer the Lord a sacrifice that cost me nothing. And at the time, I didn't know exactly where that verse was. I I was pretty sure it was something that, that King David had said during his life. But in that moment, after I heard that phrase, that verse, I just felt like I heard the Holy Spirit saying to me, Nick, your life is an offering and a sacrifice to me. And if your life is pain-free, if it's easy, if it's, if it's just, you know, everything goes to plan, that's not much of a sacrifice. That doesn't cost you very much. However, though, if your life has these moments that hurt, if your life has these moments that are hard, if it requires you to trust me when you can't see how it's all going to turn out, then that is a beautiful sacrifice that costs you something. And somehow, in a very strange way, that really encouraged me. Like even that thought of like, I will not offer the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. It, it gave me the strength that I needed. And in fact, I've gone back to it many times over the last several weeks, whenever I've been feeling somewhat down or discouraged. And actually at some point I ended up looking it up because again, I was like, I wanna make sure that's a verse, you know? And, and uh, so I Googled it like you do. Thank goodness for Google, right? And what it is, is it's, a, it's something that David says at the end of his life, and it's kind of a long story, but basically in, uh, at, uh, at the end of 2 Samuel, David takes the census, uh, and he wasn't supposed to. It was an act of sin and rebellion, and, and this plague breaks out on the people, and, and uh, it eventually stops at this one person's house at their property. And so David goes to, to the man to buy the property in order to build an altar, to offer sacrifices to the Lord as a thanksgiving for this plague stopping. And so the guy, David's interacting with the guy and the guy's like, hey, just take it, it's yours. Like, and David says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so again, I, d- I just think sometimes Jesus will combine two of these modes of counsel in order to lead and encourage us. And look, whether you realize it or not, I think in order to be a healthy and mature disciple of Jesus, you and I need to value and we need to embrace all three of these modes of counsel. What I mean is that you and I need to look for and we need to love Jesus counseling through his saints, through his scriptures and through his spirit. You see, I think in some ways, all three are dependent upon each other and they help balance each other out. For example, if you're someone who says, you know what, I, I, I don't really need the saints. Like, I don't like the church. The church has burned me and I'm, I'm just done with it. You know, I got uh, the Holy Spirit in my Bible. That's all that I need. Well, if you're that type of person, I, I've seen this before. I just think it will not be that long before you start coming up with some pretty out there ideas and beliefs. And I think you'll start making some pretty bad decisions. Because again, I think God has designed uh, things as such that you and I need each other. 
And we receive wisdom and we receive counsel from being in community with one another. I'm at the same time, if you're someone who's like, you know what, I, I, I value the saints and I love the scriptures, but I'm just not sure I'm down with the spirit, right? Like the spirit scares me. And so I'm just gonna ignore him and, and avoid that whole thing. Well, again, if you do that, I think you're gonna miss out on the counsel that Jesus has for you. And so again, all three of these are important. And I think that there are all ways that Jesus wants to use in order to counsel and to guide us. And so to close here, I just wanna ask you this question. Are you someone who consistently looks to the saints, the scriptures, and the spirit for counsel? In other words, if I or someone else uh, looked at how you spend your time, if we looked at the decisions that you've made over the years, would it be obvious that you are someone who looks to and listens to the wonderful counselor? Or would it look like you're someone who looks to either the world or, or maybe even to your own self for wisdom and direction? I mean, when you and I, when we make uh, big or significant decisions in life, who or what do we look to? I mean, we talked about this a couple months ago when we were teaching through the seven uh, letters to the seven churches. And, and I talked about how uh, this church in Laodicea, uh, self-sufficiency was one of their biggest struggles. And what we said there is that self-sufficiency really is just pride and arrogance. And the reason for that is because it takes humility to admit that you need help. It takes humility to admit that you need counsel, that you don't have everything figured out in life. And yet, if you and I, if we want to live lives that are wise, lives that are godly, then we need to not daily, in fact, definitely daily, to learn and to look to Jesus, our wonderful counselor. I mean, this is one of the ways that he was a gift to the world. Remember what it said there in Isaiah 9. It said, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. What that means is that Jesus was and Jesus is a gift to humanity. And certainly his death and paying for our sins was the main gift that he was to us. But as we see here with these names and in other passages which talk about who he is and what he came to do, there are these other gifts and blessings that he came to bring through his incarnation. And that's what we get to remember and to celebrate during this Christmas. You know, I quoted earlier this quote from Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas. But on this point, he wrote this. He said, why is he called a counselor? When you are going through something difficult, it's good to talk to someone who has walked the same path, who knows personally what you have been going through. If God has really been born in a manger, then we have something that no other religion even claims to have. It's a God who truly understands you from the inside of your experience. There's no other religion that says God has suffered, that God had to be courageous, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and die. Christmas shows he knows what you are going through. When you talk to him, he understands. See, Jesus is qualified to be the wonderful counselor because in the book of Hebrews, he is that great high priest. He is the one who can empathize with our weakness because again, he took on human flesh. He came to this earth and he lived, he suffered, and he has been tempted in every way that uh, as you and I have, and yet he was without sin. And so friends, I just want to encourage you 
to not miss out on this privilege and this relationship that you and I can and should have with the wonderful counselor. Um, Worship team, you can come on up now. Um, In a minute, we're gonna continue to sing and to worship. But before we do, I want us to remember and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You know, one of my favorite Christmas songs is actually uh, an original Christmas song by uh, this, this group called Shane and Shane. And the song's called, He Was Born to Die, which is kind of a, an odd Christmas song, right? But it's so true. And here's what the opening verse says. When the babe was born in a manger on the hay, God saw a veil torn, he saw Good Friday. He was born to die. And then the last verse says this, we came here today to celebrate his birth, but let us not forget why Jesus came to earth. He was born to die. And so even during this wonderful time of the year, a time to celebrate and to rejoice in Jesus's birth in the incarnation, let us not forget why he came. He came on a rescue mission. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. And so let us take together now the bread, which represents his body, which was beaten and broken for us. And so let's take the bread together. Let us now take the cup and let's remember and celebrate his precious blood, that blood that makes us white as snow that allows us to stand in his presence. Let's take the blood, or the cup. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are the wonderful counselor. God, we need your help. Jesus, you told your disciples that apart from you, they could do nothing. And Lord, we agree with that. And so wonderful counselor, will you come Will you counsel us? Will you use your saints? Will you use your scriptures? Will you use uh, your spirit? Lord, I just wanna pray for my friends. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who's going through uh, something uh, difficult in life, Lord, whether they, they're just confused about uh, a decision they should make or, or Lord, whether their soul is just in, in tumult, whether it's, they're just in distress, Lord, Maybe it's they're grieving something or maybe uh, they've been betrayed or whatever it is, Lord. I pray right now in this moment, Lord, as we sing, Lord, and as we uh, make space at the end of the service to pray for each other, I pray that you would come and you would meet us in that place and you would counsel us and you would lead us into all wisdom and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
was asking if the Lord had anything for us as a church. And I heard him say two things. One, that there might be some of us that are looking for the, I'm proud of you, but God's speaking over you that I love you. And so maybe if that's you this morning, I just wanna invite you to receive his love. You are wonderful to him. And I know that because it says so in Psalm 139. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So I just want you to have permission to receive his love this morning. And the, the second thing is uh, the love language of God is, is obedience. So if there's something he's calling you to that you felt like, maybe your gift to him this season is an act of obedience. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it's a big thing. But I just release power and blessing over you and giving him that gift. So those two things I just want to encourage you with. But we're going we're gonna to give you guys a moment to turn your affection to the Lord. Because in this season, it's so crazy. That when are you really going to have time to do that? So just take 15 seconds, close your eyes, 